I was shocked, shocked that I got elected. It never entered my mind that I would win, and I mean it. I never even let myself get down to Washington. I never got on the train to go to Washington to, you know, to look in the office or anything like that. I was just a lousy politician. I really was a terrible politician. Welcome to The Women, a production of iHeartRadio and myself, your host, Rose Reed. Every episode, I sit down with one person who has journeyed to do the extraordinary. And on this episode, I'm speaking with Marjorie Margolis. Hello. (laughs) Nice to be here. (laughs) Marjorie was the first woman elected to represent Pennsylvania in the House. She was elected in 1992 and went down to Washington, D.C. during the Year of the Woman. I think women are are very equipped to listen to the other side. I, I think most reasonable people are, but I think women are especially capable of doing that because we've dealt with the family things. And as Congresswoman, she got national attention when she provided what was seen as the critical vote for President Bill Clinton's budget and tax bill. And Marjorie may be America's most famous mother-in-law. Her son, Mark, is now married to Chelsea Clinton. And before all of that, in 1970, at the age of 28, when Marjorie was working as a reporter, she was covering a story on Korean orphans and was so moved by the experience that she worked to become the first unmarried U.S. citizen to adopt a child internationally. Lee Hay from Korea, and then four years later, Holly from Vietnam. And we helped change the law to make 501c3 available to folks like me. Marjorie married Edward Mavinsky, and together they had two more children, and he had already had four kids, and then they became legal guardians to three Vietnamese boys. They have 11 children in total. So when I visited Marjorie in Philadelphia, I wanted to know how this woman who's championed for adoption rights for single women and who's championed for women's rights around the world has done so while raising and caring for a large family. Yeah. That was the best part. Well, actually, I guess the most complicated part, the kids and trying to juggle it all and overcome the speed bumps. But uh, what qualifies a speed bump? um, I adopted two kids before I got married, married somebody with kids. When we got married, we had six girls. And because we had done it before, we took in a a Vietnamese refugee family. And then I was asked to run um, in 91 in a district that was very Republican. The 13th district in Pennsylvania. I am am a Democrat, as you may guess. You know, there's a narrative that's being formed that the Anita Hill hearings showcased the need for women in these senatorial seats, in these Congress seats. You think it do you had think a lot to do with the ninety two. Oh yeah. I I I can remember I can remember going away on vacation with my kids. I was particularly interested listening to the on, on radio the hearings. If you talk to the women who ran in ninety two, they'll always mention those hearings with the white guys questioning Anita Hill and some of the questions were even then off. So I ran. It was a big decision and was kind of one of those family decisions, too, because I had to give up a job, which I really loved. I I knew that it would be tough to go back to journalism. I'm kind of glad I did it the way I did it. What Um, was your job in 1991? I was working uh, with NBC, mostly for the Today Show, contributing, and also for the Owen-owned stations. I had started in New York and went to Washington and shockingly, honestly, won by 1,063 or something ridiculous like that. And I was a terrible politician. I mean, the worst politician. And and went down there the year of the woman. There were 24 new women. 
and most of us were Democrats. There were three Republicans on the House side, on the Senate side. Also, it was the year of the woman. But, um, but you know, it's interesting you say that because in 1992, what, what was dubbed the year of the woman, the Senate tripled. And that is from two to six. Right. We're not talking about a huge, a huge dramatic number, but it meant something. I mean, I can remember when we got down there, I, we would leave a room together and make a, a kind of an impact, not knowing what we were going to do. But we made an impact because we had the numbers. We were hoping I mean, that the year of the woman lasted for 365 days and then it died. But it made a difference. There are issues that had been put on the back burner for a very long time, family, medical leave and the like. I mean, it had been on the burner for for seven years, and we got there and said it had to pass. And there were things that we we decided we were going to do. And are these mostly progressive women, or was it a bipartisan effort? We tried to make it as bipartisan as possible. All of the women were, were pro-choice, some more passionately, but all the women were pro-choice. And we tried really hard to find the same center, the moderate middle. Regularly, we also talked about how important it was, which we were unable to do, to make the Congress more family friendly. We voted too late. We 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 could move the schedule. It was very hard. It was pushing the rock up the hill. But I think it was where a lot of changes started. It was also a time when polarization became much more dramatic. It was the Newt Gingrich. It was interesting to unfold. Because there was so much to do. We were fresh persons. We were new. There was so much incoming. We didn't know exactly how to handle a lot of these things. But I think that's true in any new class. I mean, I can tell you with the vote in 1993. Bill Clinton had a... A very... He had an omnibus spending package, his, his budget. And... Um, could you could you give us an explanation of what that is in one sentence? Sure. For Clinton, it was, had it not passed, I think he would have been a one-term president. It was huge. It was his budget. It had a modest tax increase, a 4.3 cent a gallon gasoline tax. I mean, I could give you the details, and if you have a problem sleeping, here's the time. Um, It was very controversial. That which made headlines said that tax increase and all that kind of stuff, it didn't address entitlements as much as I wanted it to. But it was extremely important. Most of us came in because Bill Clinton was a really good candidate in 92. We came in on his coattails. I certainly did. And it looked like it was going down. And um, I'll give you the short version. And as I walked into the house, they said the president was on the phone. And I said, well, you know, we're so close, Bill. Um, And uh, he said, what would it take? And I said, a serious conversation on entitlements. And that you wouldn't stand in the way of future cuts. And I said, very importantly, there are two things. One, I'll only be your last vote. In other words, if it's a tie, I'll break the tie. That's all. I'm not going to vote for it because I, I have problems. And <laughs> I said, you know, the calls that were coming into my, my office, mind you, calls come in when they're negative, not when they're positive. But the calls that were coming in were saying, vote against it. And I knew that there had only been two votes like that in history, one for the impeachment of Andrew Johnson, (laughs) of course, and the second was for the draft. And there had been two votes like that in history. I knew that. 217, 217, it goes down as a tie. Anyway, it, it it was a tie vote, and I broke the tie at 218. And that was 
that was a problem. <laughs> I watched a, I watched a clip of um, describing that night and that the Clinton White House was gathered around a tiny TV watching the votes come in. Yeah. And uh, when you went to cast your tie-breaking vote that the Republicans were, quote, taunting you. Is that oh, my true? gosh. And I'll never forget there was somebody in my delegation, a fellow by the name of Walker, who was jumping up and down saying, bye-bye, Marjorie. Bye-bye, Marjorie. Jumping up and down. Now, I have to say about that. He was right. Uh, he was a jerk. And and he was a phenomenal jumper. But yeah, that was what happening. And I was taken out under under the Capitol and I couldn't go outside where the press was. I was taken to a little into a little office. It was crazy. And then when I came back to the district, I had to be taken a couple of times by police uh, out of debates and everything. And although this is not what's said, what has been written, because it really makes me angry, my opponents in the next race said that I had promised I would never raise taxes. Well, I had never said that. Not only that, in debates and everything like that, people would say, would you sign a pledge to never raise taxes? I would say, you know, I'm a reporter. I don't know what it's going to be like when I get down there. And if we have some kind of a crisis, I don't want to say that I'm not going to raise taxes. If, in fact, we need to, I said it all the time. But that's not what was run against me. They're saying I promised never to raise taxes. People were really angry that I had voted. But, I, I mean, it was just absolutely thought that it was the right thing to do. And then the president... And most of his cabinet came to Bryn Mawr to do a, an entitlements conference, which was, I think, an important beginning of conversations about entitlements. So you sound like you still feel good about that. I look back on it in the same way that I felt then. I was almost numb. You know, I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, what a thing to uh, to go through uh, but it, well, I mean, there's no question in my mind that it was the right thing to do, although I don't want to sound like that. Yes, it was the right thing to do. Absolutely. No, I mean, I think it was the right thing to do. And I think we did see the benefits. Most economists will say that's where the 90s strength with the economy did begin. I saw a quote about there shouldn't be a year of the woman. There shouldn't, women shouldn't be a, a fad. And I think about your comment, you know, I'm not here to be popular. I'm here to lead. I mean, sometimes you represent and sometimes you decide that you have to lead. It also means that you may not come back. What we are seeing now in Congress, the Republican leadership, members of Congress who are their coming back has everything to do with representing and not leading. And I think that that's, that's a sh I can remember talking to Arlen Specter, whom I adored. And I said to him, how can you possibly, possibly vote the way you do on gun control? And he said, well, 90 percent of what I do is what I, you know, I, I believe in and everything like that. And 10 percent is to make sure that I come back. And in a state like Pennsylvania, you've got to make sure that, you know, that you are, you know, with the NRA and everything like that. And I totally understand because he really did feel that he was making a difference. And I understand that. But there's a side of me <laughs> that's what what I'm saying. I was just such a I was wasn't a good politician. That's where I think we make a mistake in this country, and that is especially now, the division is awful. We've got to come to the sane center. We've got to come to the moderate middle because that's where most people are. But I'm a lone voice, not a lone voice, but i'm I feel very alone about that.
Well, I think you're a very brave voice, and I think that we're talking about something that's much more at the root of the issue of ego and pride. And I think one of the things that I've been so surprised by as I um, become more of an adult, I always thought that the people serving knew more than I did and were better than me. It's been very hard to <laughs> see <laughs> to see this obstructionist kind of government and and like you said their their main job is uh reelection raising money i i mean i was just the, spending the amount of time on the phone that you had to to raise money was appalling to me but i did it you know i just i, I did it because it was part of the lay of the land yes it, it is you get there and you immediately especially if you're in the house and you immediately think about reelection I have excerpts from your book, They Came to Stay. Oh, okay. Just just for um, context. So before you were married in 1970, at the age of 28, you covered a story on Korean orphans and um, were so moved uh, by the experience that you actually became the first unmarried U.S. citizen to adopt a child internationally. A foreign child, right. Foreign child internationally. Yeah. Lee Hay. Correct. Right? And then you wrote about it in 1976 after you adopted your second daughter, Holly, from Vietnam, which happened four years later. In this book, They Came to Stay, this is one of um, several books that you've uh, written. I've pulled a couple of uh, excerpts that show people's responses to your desire to adopt as a single woman. Wow. This is before Angelina Jolie. <laughs> okay. Will you read those for us? Sure. Oh, my God. I, I'm telling you. I. Their questions were almost always the same. What kind of child do you want to adopt? A hard-to-place child. Name. Husband's name. No husband. I'm single. One of them said to me, when a single woman adopts a child, it's always for narcissistic reasons. <laughs> that was one of my favorites. Then why haven't you thought of marriage and having natural children? Yeah, th these were the questions that were asked. You really have brought me back to this. I mean, it's so long ago. My parents, the best, best, I mean, they thought I was certifiable. They, I mean, my, I can never, I'll never forget my, my um, mom saying, you're putting yourself, you don't want to get married? I mean, you're putting yourself in the position of being a divorcee with kids, you know. <laughs> You know, I, I remember the conversation, and but they were so terrific. Lihe is in her mid fifties now. Wow. I know um, she's grown. Oh, she's an old person. I mean, but she's the, and she's fabulous. She, I mean, she's really amazing. She has three kids. Two of them are in college. You talk about her as if she's, you know, like this separate entity of yours, but she's yours. Oh yeah. Oh my gosh, she's the best. I mean, she's she's amazing, and and. And uh, and then I brought her in as a student. On a student visa. On a student visa, the youngest student ever, too. Because <laughs> <laughs> she was six? She was seven. And when I went to Korea to do the story, I was doing it for the CBS-owned and operated station here, and I just took my own camera. You know, you go into, into places where there are kids who are living in orphanages and where they're unsure as to where they're going to be the next month. And you can make a difference. You know, my dad always said to me, if you can make a difference of somebody whose life you would not normally cross, then you've made a difference. Were you having dreams of babies and, like, motherhood, or was it, was it just 
a whole new world. I'll back up a little bit. What I had done was I called the agencies here and said, I'm thinking of adopting. And they said that it was at a time when they weren't putting kids Certainly not in single homes. Okay. So I was I, I was pretty much rejected, and they they said, "Why don't you call Holt?" I called Holt in Eugene, Oregon, and they had never dealt with anybody who was single. So I, I got together with them, and they were delightful. And I got all my papers together. So I went and I went to Korea, and they after a little bit, I went to the orphanage. I went to the, the agency, and they said, "We've picked a child for you." And I said, I gave birth. I mean, there I was with Lehi. It was really quite remarkable. And then uh, it was six months later, easily, she came in. And we helped change the law to make 501c3 available to folks like me. And uh, and that was that was 1970. And then in 1975, by that time, I was with with NBC and the owned and operated stations. And I was in Vietnam doing stories uh, on the orphanages and things like that. And Literally, I was walking down the street, and I bumped into some people from Holt, and they said, we're setting up an agency here. We'll pick a child for you. I adopted Holly, half Vietnamese, half American. Wow. Yeah. But your experience with Holly was much different than Lee Hay. That's what you, a lot. one of the I things mean, you uh, write about. Holly was a street child, a totally amazing kid. Um, she was six. She smoked, and uh, she was a pickpocket. And hilarious from the day she arrived. She was so funny. I mean, really funny. And she was just totally different. You know, Lee Hay was a, a, a really, she was a pleaser. And, and Holly was this off-the-wall, incredible kid. Went to Penn, University of Pennsylvania. Very smart. Yeah, but they were very, very different kids. I'm thinking about starting a family on my own. Do you recommend adopting? Oh, yeah. But it's a gamble. I mean, having a kid is a gamble. It's the best thing I ever did. Now, you have to have a very long fuse. I think you have to be very much in the in the forgiving, it's okay, category. Uh, and And love the parenting part of it. It's so much fun. But it also can be a rip-roaring pain in the neck. Um, yeah. I I look at this past month has been interesting because Holly died and and I'm so sorry. Uh, oh, it's awful. And I have twenty grandchildren, and they uh, it's so much fun. I'll show you pictures because I'm disgusting, but they all get together. And this past over the summer, Holly's kids came in, and Lee's kids, and Mark's kids, and it, the the real joy is watching all of them get together and thinking, oh my gosh, what a Total random gathering. <laughs> I look at this gathering of people, and I think, wow. Vu said to me, years ago, we were on a vacation. We were walking down a beach with nine of the kids. And I'll never forget it. He said to me, what would have happened had my, my folder been on a different desk that day? And and that's I think that's it. It's very it's very random, but I think that if you don't feel as though you're going to get a lot out of it, you shouldn't be doing it. You've got to feel I think that it's going to bring you joy, and that joy is something that you then you you give to your kids. It's that's passed down down from generation to generation. Do you think it's easier or harder to parent? Young children or adults, watching your kids become adults, letting go. The the issues are completely different. The issues are, com- 
I, I'm absolutely convinced that I would like to come back as a marsupial. <laughs> and there are times I just want to hold them. But they're doing exactly what they should be doing. You know, and it's exactly what you kind of think you're setting them up for, but you're saying, wait a minute. <laughs> no, it's great. I mean, it's great. But it, it, it has its moments. Marjorie's husband, Ed Mavinsky, got national attention in 2001 when he was convicted of 31 charges of felony fraud. Politico reported that he stole almost $10 million from unsuspecting investors, including his own mother-in-law. He pleaded guilty to all counts and served five years in federal prison. During his sentence, he and Marjorie got divorced. So I'm wondering if you can um, describe when you later ran, when you, when you ran again, can you talk to me about the feelings at that time that led you to decide to to run again? Two thousand, right, right, and uh, the, then at that point, my husband was getting into trouble, <laughs> so I had to. Uh, and how did how did you guys actually meet? I interviewed him for a story. Yeah, I interviewed him on the hill uh, in uh, nineteen seventy five. And he was a member of Congress from Iowa. I was doing an article about adoptions, especially it was talking about the Vietnamese. And he had, he had made some interesting comments on it. Yeah. And what was your impression when you met him? I, I thought he was terrific. I was very impressed with him. And he was very kind and was a lovely guy. We went out to dinner that night and, uh, and got married fairly quickly after that. And we put these two families together. Wow. Was that hard dating with, uh, as a single mom? No. <laughs> so when you decided to to run again, you were in the midst of a of a run for I think it was Rick Santorum's Senate seat. Is yeah. that correct? Yeah, yeah. But you dropped out of that race, right? Do you want to talk about that a little bit? I I dropped out because Ed had gotten into uh, some complications. He he had done some investing in things that he really believed in, and they didn't work out. So it got complicated and. And there was just way too much going on. My job has always been, always been, which as you you implied before, was making sure that the family is on track. You know, we had kids in college and everything like that. So it was just, it was just too much. It was just too much going on. So I dropped out. How did you navigate that professionally and emotionally? Um, I think I just barreled through. I think there was so much going on and there were so many kids and so many. I knew that I had to continue to work, which I did. I honestly, I look back on that time and think, okay, I'm going to get through this. Uh, you know, I, I, I know that I'm going to, I'll be able to, to do this. And um, I, I say this now, you know, you learn from the tough times. Uh, I am learned. Uh, I have definitely, I, I, I'm, I'm at the point now where I don't, I, I have, I want to learn. I don't want to learn anymore. I'm <laughs> I am learned. Marjorie is the founder and president of Women's Campaign International, and she's taught at the University of Pennsylvania for 20 years. Marjorie, in 1995, served as the director of the U.S. delegation to the U.N.'s Fourth World Conference on Women in Beijing. I was the head of our delegation for the Beijing conference. I came back and the White House said, we've got to get more women to the table. So I started an organization called Women's Campaign International, and I went to 
Penn, where I had graduated, and started this organization. It's been a long, long time. We're still, we still exist, and we've been in 45 different countries. We train women to be leaders. And so I was very much engaged in trying to get grants from USAID and from the State Department. And I started to teach. There were t- two main courses. One was Empowering Women in Emerging Democracies. The other course that I taught was with David Eisenhower, as in David Eisenhower, as in, as in Eisenhower's grandson. So every four years, we do that. I watched a pundit who was speaking recently. She didn't reference specific research, but she said there's a lot of research about uh, when there's a woman in the room and it makes a difference on cooperation. And- Huge. Let me talk to you about that internationally. You get a woman at the table. Especially, we, we got a grant from the Department of Defense to do a program in Liberia. And we worked with women there in terms of a lot of what we do is communications. And USAID Mission gave us a grant to train women. We trained about 100,000 women all over the country in every single solitary area, region, village. And when Ebola hit, we were there because Ebola is a disease of information. And most of the women we worked with were illiterate but brilliant, and they were able to get the message out. That's what we do. Women are just able to get into villages, into cantons, into councilmanic districts, into congressional districts, and just create a different conversation. It's not necessarily better or worse, but it's different. And that's what I think makes a huge difference. With regard to Women's Campaign International, it's one of our, I think, most effective moments. For someone like you who has done such a variety of work and To me, the impression that I have is that being out of office, you only have more fuel, more energy, more issues that you're championing. Um, The day after election, when we're looking at the results and we're thinking about what's next, you know, the women who win and the women who don't win, um, what what's like the next move for for them forward thinking about um, continuing to leave a legacy? Well, I would say embrace those issues that are really important. But when we got down there in 92, one of the things that we said all the time was look at what those issues are and try and explain to the guys who have been there for a really long time. Most of these issues that are important are family issues, education, choice, just health care. Think of it in terms of how it really affects you and your family and stick to that. I think it's going to be another year of the woman, I hope. And now we've got to face up to the the honest conversation of those people who feel as though they haven't been listened to. And I think women can do that. The other thing that women have to be careful about, um, I think, is that we do have a tendency to want to please people. And we have to be able to step back and say, okay, we can please some, but we've got to step up to the plate. You know, be a voice for the little person, but the everyday person and the people in your family and the next generation. You can follow Marjorie on Twitter at M-M-A-R-G-O-L-I-E-S-P-A. You can follow Marjorie and her work at womenscampaigninternational.org. The Women is a production of iHeartRadio and myself, your host, Rose Reed. Holly Fry is our executive producer. 
This episode was mixed by Adrian Lilly. Special thanks to Kevin Murphy, Sabine Janssen, Nora Kipnis, and the iHeart team, and especially Gail Reed. A very special thank you to TJ Hurst in Philadelphia, who made this interview possible. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you liked this episode, rate and review us on whatever platform you listen to. It really helps other folks find us.